Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Our heart is affected by many things, both good and bad. Researchers in Sweden monitored the heart rates of singers as they performed. The singers' pulses began to speed up and slow down at the same rate. Keep the beat alive, issues of the heart. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Dock, celebrating our 20th season. Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, one of the Prairie Docs. For the previous 19 seasons, On Call with the Prairie Doc has provided truthful, tested, and timely medical information. As we celebrate our 20th season, our goal is to continue that tradition. Joining us tonight here in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings are Drs. Megana Helder and Dr. Mohammed Chowdhury of North Central Heart a division of Avera Heart Hospital in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Helder, if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so I was born in India, and we moved to the United States when I was seven years old, and I got to grow up in small towns in Colorado and Nebraska and live a wonderful Midwestern childhood. Uh, and then I went to Truman State University in Missouri and went to medical school in St. Louis. Uh, and then I trained at the Mayo Clinic for nine years, and now I'm a cardiac surgeon at, at North Central Heart. Nine, nine years of training at Mayo. Nine, nine years of training. So what was that training? <laughs> so it really was a combination of both general surgery to begin with and then uh, a cardiothoracic training. Uh, so really all aspects of uh, cardiac surgical uh, pathology and um, also a little bit about lungs and esophagus that I don't do much of, um, but really focusing on, on taking care of the heart and what we can fix. <laughs> Great. And Dr. Chowdhury, how about you? Uh, I was born in Bangladesh, then I grew up in Dubai, I did my medical school in Dubai, and uh, after graduating I practiced in cardiology in Egypt, I worked a bit in India, then I worked in UK in cardiology, and then decided to move to the States. Once I moved to the States, I did my residency in Ohio for three years in medicine, then I did three years cardiology fellowship in Ohio, and then I did an advanced heart failure fellowship at Vanderbilt, and then moved to Sioux Falls, and I've joined Avera. So truly all over the world, and now you found finally the best place to live, huh? Pretty much, pretty much. Yeah, that has been my experience. Like I've worked all over. People are very, very friendly here. It's been a pleasure. I've worked here for like two and a half years, and it's pretty much like, I'm ready to call it home at this point. You know, good. So. Very good. Yeah. Nice to have you both. We look forward to answering your questions about issues of the heart. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send us an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. While your question will remain anonymous, please provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. 
So, uh, Dr. Helder, as a cardiovascular surgeon, what are some of the things that, that you do typically? Absolutely. So, the majority of uh, what I deal with are blocked heart arteries. So, the best, best thing to fix blocked heart arteries is bypassing those blockages. So, also known as coronary artery bypass grafting or cabbage. Uh, is probably the most uh, common uh, operation that I do, but I also take care of the different valves in the heart, specifically the aortic valve or the mitral valve or the tricuspid valve. A uh, special interest of mine are patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, which is a genetic condition where a portion of the heart muscle becomes big, which then obstructs flow coming out of the heart going to the rest of the body. So we can fix that by uh, shaving off part of that muscle and allowing blood flow to get out to the heart easier. Um, the kind of the, we're plumbers, right? We're glorified plumbers <laughs> um, and really try to fix those mechanical issues. So the cardio, uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, yeah. the enlarged muscle of the heart there, you know, as a primary care doc, I'm looking at that when I'm doing my, my sports physicals and kids. Right. What, what, cause, cause why? Sure. So, um, hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, or HOCAM, um, is one of the most common causes of sudden death. And the what you usually the types of patients that you see that in are not the ones that are older; they're younger, so 50 years or even younger than that. And they come in and they'll tell you that they're short of breath and they're not sure. They may look completely physically fit to you; you can't really figure out the reason why they're short of breath and then you listen to them and they have a heart murmur. Um, those are patients that have that big muscle that's causing that obstruction to blood flow and, uh, and that's caused by that genetic disorder and we can, by taking part of that muscle off, actually extend their life and decrease their chance of sudden death. So, you know, I, we've got a, 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 a picture we can show about this surgery and we'll see if we can pull that up. Um, and so with this surgery, I understand that you're going in and taking out some of this extra muscle. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I hope you guys can see this okay. So this is a cut, uh, cut through of the heart longitudinally. And so this is the muscle that is, uh, that's big. And one of the leaflets of the mitral valve actually hits against this muscle. And normally blood flow is supposed to go this way. And you can imagine when this leaflet hits this muscle that's enlarged, there's not a huge path for blood to flow. Um, so if we can go to the next slide. Oh, perfect. Uh, we are able to go in through the through the aortic valve, and you can see the scalpel here, and take a real big chunk of that muscle away so that we can make this opening bigger so there's more blood that can flow through. So this is literally an open heart surgery where you're going right into the heart. Absolutely, so in order to be able to do this, we have to put patients on the heart-lung machine so we can circulate their blood for them and uh, oxygenate their blood. Because you can imagine if we open this up, uh, there'd be blood squirting in our face and we really wouldn't be able to see much or do much. Um, but this is, this is about as open heart as it gets. How yeah. long are they in the hospital after this? Four days. 
Wow, and then they're going home and they're going home feeling better already. Then feeling better. These, uh, you know, we're we're fixing something that automatically makes them feel better. So even though they may have some pain from the incision uh, and just having been put through a you know a large stress of open heart surgery, these patients already you know day one, day two feel better than they did when they came in. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a really great thing to be able to do. Now, Dr. Chowdhury, you specialize in heart failure. Yes. So tell us a little bit about your practice. Uh, so my practice mainly, yes, again, heart failure is I take care of patients whose heart pretty much re reached the end of uh, the function. Like a normal pumping function is about 60%. My patients, their pumping function is around 20%. And my job is pretty much try to give them a good quality of life, uh, try to help them as possible to help their heart recover, find out what's causing their heart pumping function to go down. And, uh, and in some cases when the heart is really bad, then think about about giving them a new heart or a pumping machine that can help the heart support uh, overall try to improve the quality of life. Yeah. yeah. Now, interestingly, the heart function is normal at around 60%. Why wouldn't it be 100%? Oh, I think that's that's how it is. that's how the squeezing is, you know, so cuz cuz we're talking about how much it squeezes pumped out. Yeah, so think once. yeah, think of it as a container and squeezes the blood out. So when when we look at it it just squeezes, it doesn't squeeze all the blood out. There has to be some blood in. So sure. it has to so it squeezes about 60%. So and so what are some of the causes of why it's having trouble and only working at 30%? So, so one of the most the most common one is if you have blockages. Okay? So if you have blockages, the heart doesn't get blood supply, and as a result, the heart gets weak. Or think about like uh, watering a, gar a garden or something like that. So the blood flow is what brings oxygen, nutrition for the heart to function. If you have blockage, that's the major reason, and that's when the heart kind of, after a heart attack, the heart uh, gets weaker. And especially if you do have a heart attack, if that heart muscle doesn't get blood supply, that kind of becomes scarred and that causes your pumping function to go down. So that's number one. The other uncommon, uh, common, I mean, other secondary reasons are maybe increased alcohol intake. They're, they're kind of toxic to the heart and they cause the heart to dilate and uh, decrease uh, functioning. Uh, drugs such as methamphetamine, sometimes cocaine, they can, cause, they can impact the heart. And then the new ones that we see are chemotherapy. They're also having a toll on the heart too. So these are the most common ones and then there is viruses and a bit of infections or uh, increased sudden amount of stress, these can kind of bring down your heart. Uh, you mentioned viruses that can be a factor and obviously COVID-19 yes. has been on people's minds yes. and, and I understand that's increase some of these cardiomyopathies. Yes. How does a virus cause? So what it does, so what COVID does, it basically puts your body in the stress. So think about your body being hit by a bus or something. There's like your body is uh, uh, exposed to the virus and is doing everything it can to kind of save you. So your immune system kind of goes up and on the way it kind of starts attacking the heart. I think that's uh, that's where the heart gets affected. Uh, in my clinic, I've seen a couple of patients where the pumping function has gone down because of the, because of the sudden stress. And with medications and with about three to six months, we do see the heart pumping function recover. But again, it has to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, we have to identify those patients because many patients after COVID think they're short of breath but don't get their heart checked, you know. So it's, it's, it's a new phenomenon that we're seeing. And, and other things that I do see after, after COVID is a lot of my younger patients, they do come with very uh, atypical symptoms like shortness of breath, palpitations. Uh, and it seems that we are learning more about the virus, you know. 
know, it, it, there are some lingering symptoms. This, they last for six to 12 months and then eventually kind of go away. But uh, if somebody does have like swelling of the feet, shortness of breath with exertion after COVID, they will need to be checked with heart. And the first step is doing an ultrasound of the heart, which is an echocardiogram that will give us an idea how the heart is functioning. Um, this, along those lines, this person asks, has there been a correlation between COVID and increased risk of heart attack? Uh, so what we have seen when initially when COVID came and we, we, we were taking this by surprise, a lot of people were developing clots. Uh, so people do develop clots in their legs and, uh, and their lungs. A lot of people were presenting with strokes. Similarly, they were kind of finding, we were finding you know, uh, increased blockages and that was a phenomenon that we were kind of tackling the first three or four months of COVID. So I think it's all again, the, it, the, the immune system goes so ramped up that you have all these uh, side effects. So I think heart attack is one of those acute, uh, acute uh, that we have experienced and we did see it quite a bit in the cath lab during that period. Sure. Uh, going back to the uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, this patient says, I have this and had a septal myectomy, am still struggling with the AFib and hypertension, relapse of shortness of breath and fatigue. What is happening and will I have to get another septal myectomy? Uh, those are good questions. Um, so it, it depends on the completeness of the myectomy, I would say. So uh, it's when you're looking and doing the myectomy, what I do and what I was taught to do is right after you come off bypass, you look at the echo in the operating room and make sure that you don't see that obstruction anymore. To a different level, I also put needles in the heart and actually measure the different pressures on either side of that muscle to make sure that they're the same. Uh, so the question is, you know, was it a complete myectomy to begin with? Uh, on the other side of it, obviously the heart, um, and especially patients that have been dealing with heart disease, have multiple things that cause the same symptoms. So atrial fibrillation can cause shortness of breath, and patients with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy know that they can have other arrhythmias along with that. Um, so sometimes a pacemaker and just a paced rhythm leads to shortness of breath. Um, so I, I wouldn't say another myectomy. That's it, probably rare. That's probably very rare as long as, you know, it was a good complete myectomy to begin with. It's probably these other things that are leading to the shortness of breath. The other thing about hypertrophic is your heart's kind of thick. So your heart squeezes and relaxes. So when your heart's really thick, the relaxing part is a bit more mm -hmm. sluggish. So that might, so the heart squeezes and when it relaxes, sucks blood from the lung. I think that part might be a bit more impaired. And I think uh, the next step should be like aggressive medical therapy and, right. you know, so work with water pills and then maybe we can evaluate and see. I don't know how much of the AFib is hitting it, how much is the heart being stiff, how much is again being deconditioning from all the procedures and, you know, being, uh, being short of breath for so long because deconditioning is another phenomenon that we're seeing in the clinic nowadays. Right. You touched on, we've talked about AFib for a second, atrial fibrillation mm -hmm. and irregular heart rhythm, which is quite common. You know, what are some of the causes of atrial fibrillation, Dr. Chow? Oh, oh, so, so one of the main uh, ones that we see in a clinic is sleep apnea that has not been diagnosed. So, so because just think of it, if you're sleeping and, you, and your body is not getting adequate sleep, it's under stress. So anything that stresses the heart kind of leads to increased rate and that leads to atrial fibrillation. Uh, increased stimulants such as coffee, smoking, sometimes alcohol. Those are the big ones that we kind of take a look at. And sometimes there's also a big genetic component. Uh, but yeah, but these are the big 
big ones that I kind of look at. And even sometimes thyroid disorders, if your thyroid is there, that can, if you have increased thyroid functioning, that can cause you to go into AFib. Is AFib dangerous? Does it cause any risk factors? Uh, no, so so it, it doesn't affect your, affect the mortality, but it can affect, some people it affects the quality of life. You know, they get more short of breath easily. So for example, if you have AFib, when you try to do exertion, your heart rate really goes really high and some people don't tolerate it. In those people, we try to convert them to normal sinus rhythm by shocking them out of the rhythm or medications. And of course, we want to anticoagulate, that's put them the, on a blood thinner to prevent stroke risk. And that's yeah. also the big one, too. Yeah, because when it's not beating right, that blood can pool in there yeah. and form a clot yep. and then. Yeah, yeah. Go and I think, it, you know, surgically at least, there's um, AFib can happen in 30% of patients uh, after any heart operation, as you can imagine, we're in there irritating the heart, heart doesn't like that. Um, and especially if there's mitral valve uh, leakage, that's often 40% of those patients can have atrial fibrillation, not just after the surgery, but anytime afterwards. Uh, so one thing that we do often is actually clip uh, the left atrial appendage and what I mean by that. So the left atrial appendage is just a blind pouch off of the filling chamber of the left heart and that's where blood can pool and form that clot you were talking about causing that stroke and so we clip so blood doesn't flow into that uh, which reduces risk of stroke uh, which is a really nice thing as people get older and don't want to be on blood thinners uh, a way that you know would supplant that and it's the same thing as um, so Dr. Adams and some of our other partners do something called a watchman procedure which uh, you go in from the inside and put basically doing what we do from the outside on the inside. Yeah, that's amazing procedure too, and one you know doesn't have to be open heart. I mean, they go in what through the groin and right exactly. through a smaller vessel and work their way right, up to the work heart. Right, the, work their way up. I don't know the the details oh, of so that. They go through the groin. So the device is like an umbrella. So that pocket, ninety percent of the clot forms in that pocket. As you said, uh, in AFib, the heart's just going fibrillating; it's not squeezing. So ninety percent of the blood kind of stays stasis and forms the clot. So what they do is they take an umbrella-like device and just kind of occlude it. So that takes out your risk stroke and this person another afib question i'm currently taking 200 milligrams of amiodarone for my afib what are the long-term side effects and how long should i take it yeah, amiodarone does have long-term side effects, and what we worry about is liver toxicity, uh, thyroid, thyroid uh, problems, or even uh, fibrosis of the lung. Uh, again, depends on the patient's age and everything in medicine is risk versus benefit. If it's a younger patient, I usually try to go for ablation where we go burn the pathway. But if the patient's on the older side, maybe uh, like 80, 75 to 80, I think uh, I think amiodarone should be fair enough because unfortunately, all the medications that try to control AFib do have their share of side effects and amiodarone is the most effective one it has but again it's as long as they're being monitored regularly on an annual basis I think it should be fine and I, there are newer surgical, mm -hmm. so the surgical way to address atrial fibrillation, so the electrophysiologists have ablations. Um, we have something called the maze procedure, which we use different sorts of energies to kind of reroute the electrical pathway of the heart. Um, one newer thing that we're doing is something called the convergent operation, uh, which uh, one of my senior partners has been doing this for quite a few years now uh, where he'll go in through a, a small incision and essentially make uh, 
burn marks using that energy on the back of the heart. And then one of the electrophysiologists, Dr. Adams, will go in and map out and see what is left and can endo a blade. So we're addressing it both, you know, from the back end on the inside, endocardially and epicardially, and that's we've seen great results with that. To, it's you like know, a double layer that. procedure yeah. kind yeah. of right. thing. You can't skip at this point. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what they're what right. they're doing. <laughs> One more thing about AFib: what is the impact of alcohol use in people with AFib? Uh, you mentioned how alcohol can be mm. a risk factor. Yeah. What do you know how or why? I think it just kind of increases the stress and the stress of the heart and kind of leads that way. So better to maybe yeah, either yeah. abstain or drink in moderation. Yeah, right? yeah, moderation is. Well, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR, is a procedure that replaces a diseased aortic valve with a man-made valve. Prairie Doc reporter Esther Michael introduces us to a man who had this procedure, yet continues to pursue his passion for staying active. It's a minimally invasive procedure so the name is transcatheter aortic valve replacement, so T-A-V-R. And a transcatheter element means that the, the valve that's going in is at the end of a catheter, a big long catheter, and can be blown up in a, with a balloon, just the way a catheter would do stents, for example, in, a, in an artery, coronary artery. So <clears throat> they go in in the arterial system, so in the groin area, there's a very large femoral artery, which then leads into ever larger arteries in the aorta, right? So that's the way they go in, go into the heart. John Ruffalo was a relatively healthy person before his procedure. Within two days, he was discharged from the hospital. After cardiac rehab and follow-up visits with his doctor, the symptom of shortness of breath was relieved. After the procedure, everything is really great. What brings it on, the symptoms for this, is shortness of breath. And when the shortness of breath gets to be debilitating, that's when you say, yo, what can I do about this? And that was my case. Just walking the dog or climbing up a flight of stairs, I'd get short of breath. And I'm a fairly active individual and so that really cramps your lifestyle. You know, say, well, gee, you know, why, why do I have to get so short of breath? And it, it really slows you down. You know, you say, well, at a certain point, you say, well, I'm going to stop, you know, what I'm doing. I won't take long walks and stuff like that. John continues his upper body activities, such as shooting at the gun range and archery. He says that physical activities are valuable to ensure successful recovery after any type of procedure, regardless of your age. The valve replacement by this technique is, I think, everyone would recommend simply because, well, I'm sure there could be certain circumstances, details, that's, that would say, well, no, you have to have the open heart surgery. I mean, you know, surgeons would decide that. That's part of the evaluation. But I think the idea that um, the valve isn't going to last long enough, hopefully that one will, will prove out to be okay, that it'd do pretty much as well as what you would do with open heart surgery. And in that case, that being the only distinction, I would say definitely the TAVR. To me, uh, it w in my particular case, very successful. I'm pretty sure the data generally show, clinical data show, that for the, uh, the large majority of patients, 
is very, very successful. It really is amazing, and thank you so much, John, for your help with that. Uh, so here's a question about the TAVR procedure. This, a woman had a TAVR procedure one year ago. How long is it effective for, and is it better than open heart surgery? <laughs> uh, so that's a good question. Um, I think a little bit of background just to, before I answer that question. So what TAVR treats is something called aortic valve stenosis. So the aortic valve sits at the top of the heart, and as we get older, and because of the same risk factors that cause blockages in the arteries that supply blood to the heart, the valve leaflets get calcified and they don't move very well. So the opening uh, of the aortic valve should normally be about the size of a quarter. And in patients that have severe aortic valve stenosis, it's about the size of a back of a number two pencil eraser. So very small, so you're not getting very much blood flow through. So we don't have a good way of medically treating that. The best way that we know of treating that is replacing that aortic valve with another valve. Um, the only two valves that we have, the two valve types, are either a mechanical valve or a tissue valve. So a mechanical valve we generally recommend in patients less than 70 years of age because it'll last forever. Uh, but the bad thing about it is you have to be on Coumadin or Warfarin for the rest of your life. Um, a tissue valve, uh, we know if we put one in through a sternotomy or through open heart surgery, will last probably about 10 years. So that type of valve, we found you can crimp down and get small enough, a tissue valve, that we can put in through a patient's groin or you know, the arterial system, and that's what a TAVR is. So it's, not, it's actually the same procedure as an open aortic valve replacement. It's just done in a different way to allow for lesser recovery. And I think it, there's not a blanket, it's better than open heart surgery or better than open, I think it's the right procedure for the right patient. Probably a faster recovery at first. Perhaps. Absolutely. I mean, without the big chest right. surgery. Right, yep, yeah. so probably faster recovery, but there's drawbacks to it in that we don't, you know, those valves or the TAVR valves, we don't know how long they last yet as compared to even the open tissue valves. Uh, we assume that they're about the same amount of time, but you can imagine when you're crimping something down, you're not sure. We just don't have that data yet. Because we've been yet. doing them for I, I, I believe it's we're now getting to 10 years, but we don't have the data for the 10-year durability yet. So in your practice, are you seeing some of those now that have had them a while? Uh, yeah, 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 and uh, I think uh, with Eco, most of them I have seen that they have been doing pretty well so far. You know, the results have been good. They're back to their functional quality. And then they don't need to be on anticoagulation right. or blood thinner. Yeah, that that's the plus. That's yeah. very nice. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. excellent. Uh, this person says I am a triplet, and I am the only one. Oh, I'm sorry. What is the life expectancy of a 76-year-old man after a TAVR? He had a heart rate of 150s to 160s. So I guess we kind of answered that, where yeah. it could, you know, 10 years or more, more so perhaps, far. but perhaps then the valve could be replaced. Right, exactly. So the I think TAVR is very good at fixing aortic valve stenosis. It's, you know, that valve may only last for 10 years, but we can put another valve inside that sure. valve. So it's not, um, I think, after you treat the aortic valve stenosis, the prognosis, should be pretty close to what 
you know, it would have been otherwise. It's what else caused the aortic valve stenosis? Right. Have we fixed those issues that probably affects how long he's going to live more than anything else at and that the thing point. with Tavor came, it was done in high-risk patients who were like 85, 90, and stuff like that. So that's what the data initially started. Now we are kind of broadening up to intermediate to lower risk. But initially when you had, so I think, right. so those were like older patients to start with who were high surgical risks. They were not candidate for open-heart surgery. So Tavor were initially for those. So, yeah, and we're learning more as we go, but yeah. Sure. Going back to this uh, triplet. They are triplet, uh, and am the only one of the three that has to take high blood pressure medications. Oh. Why is that, and is there anything I can do besides watch my diet? Oh boy, that is a hard that question. That is a hard, hard question. question. I'm like, I have to say, what are the other two? Well, other you know, I mean, in general. Yeah. So, what you know, if someone has risk factors for high blood pressure, mm -hmm. what would be some of their risk factors for high blood pressure? Uh, again, uh, I think uh, the main thing is. Uh, a couple of risk factors are maybe sleep apnea, undiagnosed sleep apnea. That's what I see that's just missed, uh, and that can make an impact on blood pressure. I, I think diet in general, too, you know, it, it, salt is the biggest culprit over here uh, uh, because they kind of retain water, and that increases your uh, your blood pressure. And then, again, a bit of exercise. So those were the ones that sedentary lifestyle that kind of lead to high blood pressure, obesity, and now on rarer side are some hormonal problems or there is some issues with your kidney those cause your blood pressure to rise. So these are the big ones. Yeah. It is amazing those twin studies yeah. that they, where they can isolate the genetic reason, yeah. but then sometimes you know, we don't Nature know the details. Right. Yeah. And everybody different. For example, if, if two people have the same genes, everybody expresses the gene differently. So there is a lot of variation, as he said, you know, so. Yeah. This person says her husband had a history of AFib and he recently had a biventricular pacemaker put in. And now we're going back to electrophysiology <laughs> question, sorry. How long should he be on amiodarone? So, you know, as far as a pacemaker, um, does that solve the, solve the problem of AFib sometimes? So, so it depends on what, why the pacemaker was put. Sometimes what we do is if the AFib cannot be controlled regardless of medication, they try ablating it. What they do is, so the atrial, AFib is basically comes from the top chamber. And the top chamber tells the bottom chamber how fast to go. So the, in AFib, the basically the problem in the top chamber. So what they do is they cut the connection on the top chamber, bottom chamber, and then put a pacemaker. So you're just dependent on the pacemaker. And although your top chamber is doing AFib, but your bottom chamber doesn't have any communication, and your heart rate is regulated by the pacemaker. So I'm not too sure whether that was the procedure that was done or the pacemaker was put in addition. But I think uh, I think that's where we are at. Yeah. And then they asked about the amiodarone. Yeah. But but that would just be a question for their yeah, doctor. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, so many it depends right. on that. But again, if they did that procedure, then I think, again, if, if there are issues with side effects, then I might just come off the amiodarone if they had an ablation and stuff like that. I think the main point of that is, so pacemaker isn't a treatment for AFib. It was probably yeah. done for a different reason, and the amiodarone is treating the atrial fibrillation, sure. is what I would say. And Sounds yeah. good. Context. Yeah. <laughs> My doctor said that my main vessel supplying blood to my heart is almost completely blocked. Can I have a put, stent put in? What are my options? Yeah, 
I'll take this and not. <laughs> so uh, I assume he's talking about the LED or what we call the left anterior descending artery. It's Is that the, the widowmaker? That's that's what's been referred to <laughs> as the widowmaker. So it supplies the largest amount of heart muscle with blood. Uh, so the question of stenting versus bypass surgery. So in general, what we say is uh, if it's gonna take a lot of stents or it's very complicated, at some point it's gonna be better to have bypass surgery than having multiple, multiple stents. And we, it, or if there's multiple vessels that are diseased, so there's you know, two main uh, heart arteries and those split into various branches, if multiple of those vessels are blocked or you know obstructed to a significant degree then from cholesterol from from smoking, cholesterol from diabetes yes. from obesity all of those yeah, yeah kind of the i think you did a good summary of those in genetics as well we're yeah. seeing younger and younger patients um, then bypass surgery offers a more durable option uh, to prevent a future heart attack. So that's really the point of getting blood flow back to those areas is to prevent future heart attacks and not see Dr. Chowdhury <laughs> over here for heart failure. Um, so, And we used to do maybe more bypass right. than cabbages, right. coronary artery bypass graft, but then these stents came out where they can go in and just put in a little stent to open it up. But there's certainly situations where we still need to do right. the bypass. I think stents are actually great for acute uh, uh, MI, so what we call STEMIs. So when a patient's actively not getting blood flow to having that, a heart attack. having a heart attack, then it's the quickest way to get blood flow back. And you know, we've all kind of seen in code situations, you know, less than six hours and things like that. So. I think that's a good lead into how staying active is very important for your heart health. But you may not know which physical activity would provide health benefits, yet not be too strenuous. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt introduces you to a preventive care specialist who has found a love for pickleball. Ernie Medina Jr., who lives in Loma Linda, California, was introduced to the growing sport of pickleball in 2016. The sport is somewhat of a cross between tennis and badminton. As I learned about the game more and, and, and played it more, I realized that it was, you know, pickleball is a very easy sport to learn. Uh, and so I, I started seeing it as a way of getting people to be more physically active because as a preventive care specialist, one of my other nicknames is a physical activity evangelist. So I'm always trying to get people to be more physically active. Medina became an ambassador for USA Pickleball in 2016 and was elected to serve on the board of directors in 2020. Pickleball wasn't available where he lived, so he took matters into his own hands. I bought a net, invited some friends, and we started with nine people. And now fast forward to, to 2021, and there's probably over a thousand people playing. Every city around us has pickleball courts, has pickleball clubs. Uh, and it all, but it all started from that original nine, and then it grew and grew and grew. I've seen pickleball as sort of one of the best public health interventions for physical activity, you know, for getting communities and people physically active. Medina stresses the importance of a healthy diet for heart health, but says being physically active is another key thing. People who are physically inactive are not getting enough physical activity. They tend to have that kind of plaque buildup and hardening of the arteries. And so the general recommendation is, uh, 150 minutes of physical activity per week at moderate intensity. 
So that's like five days a week of 30 minutes. So playing pickleball would be easy to get that. Medina was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy, a disease of the heart muscle. So pickleball helps him with that condition. It allows me to still keep active, still keep exercising, which I still need to do, but it doesn't force me to exercise at a too high a level that is too hard for my heart. So personally, that's been a big thing. I understand pickleball is like the fastest growing sport in the U.S. right now, so I'm going to have to pick that up here pretty soon. Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously exercise is so good for the heart um, and, uh, and good can help with, with your blood pressure. This question we had early on here, what is a healthy blood pressure for a 200 plus pound female? Oh, uh, so so it kind of depends on risk factors. If you have a lot of risk factors, we be a bit, uh, be a bit be a bit more aggressive with the blood pressure control because again, blood pressure is the one that causes you know progression of uh, blockages and leads to heart attacks or even heart failure. Uh, so normally we would like less than 130 by 80. You know, if you have risk factors, if you have no risk factors, you know, be 140 by 80. But with 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 the weight, I think uh, less than 130 by 80, the better. I will take a little bit of a minute here. So normal blood pressure is 120 over 80, right? But I think it's very easy to say, oh, it's just high blood pressure because you don't see the effects of it, I think, in everyday life. So it's easy to say, oh, I'll treat that with diet or I won't worry about medications or, you know, I'm not going to worry about the salt. But it really causes a lot of effects both in the heart, the kidneys, uh, things that I see when I'm doing open heart surgery that I don't think a lot of people realize how important it is to prevent those things from happening by treating blood pressure. This is my public service announcement for the day. Because <laughs> you're, you're in there literally you're seeing, seeing the heart, literally right. seeing the vessels and seeing the effects right. and the buildup. Actually and just last week I had a very young patient um, and he had very uncontrolled hypertension so 150s over 90s is kind of where he lived and his heart muscle so thickened from that and it just doesn't squeeze the same way and doesn't relax in the same way so it's really important to understand how it can affect your body yeah uh, this question is from a 67 year old woman as right bundle branch block can you explain that one? Oh, it's uh, basically most of the time it's benign. It's basically uh, so the way it comes, the connection comes from the top of the so the the heart, the top chamber sends impulses to the bottom chamber, and what it does, it comes via and then divides the left side and the right side. Right bundle branch block is there might be a small block, and the left side gets activated before the right side. As long as the patient is not symptomatic, you know, there's a lot of people who have right bundle branch block and doing, you know. Uh, yeah, even so many young people have that. Have it, that it, too. Where just is yeah. the way it is. Yeah. 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 Um, how long does a mechanical valve last? You mentioned that those can last a long time, and this yeah. person's asked if they will have to get theirs replaced. Right. No, so a mechanical valve should really last a a human person's you know lifetime uh, the reason that we put patients on warfarin or, uh, uh, or coumadin is to prevent clots from forming and cause a stroke because it's an artificial material that's in contact with the blood but the durability is tested for 
far past our lives, yeah. Yeah, and it makes such a nice little click when you're listening. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Some patients find it very, very uh, calming, actually, right? Your, your heart's working. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. Um, this person asks about uh, extensive history of needing bypass surgery in their family, mm -hmm. and if this can be hereditary. Absolutely. I think the more uh, young patients that we're seeing, there's a definite genetic component. Um, but that's exacerbated, it, especially as Dr. You know, Chowdhury was saying, there's genes that we get passed down, but those genes are either expressed or not expressed based on lifestyle things that we do. Um, so lifestyle choices we make can alter our genetics or you know temper them to a degree, but if there's a, a large history of young, or premature, what we call coronary artery disease, then there's a strong genetic component. Yeah. Um, this is a little detailed question, but we'll, we can do our best with it. It says, my son had an ASD procedure, so he had an atrial septal defect, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. procedure at age 17. Um, and, and had it repaired to close the hole, uh, transcatheter repair. Mm -hmm. He had it checked again five years later. Any recommendations for future checks or special attention needed? Does that usually solve the problem or? It does. Um, so the basically an atrial septal defect, it's the two filling, so there's a right side and a left side to the heart, they're both filling chambers and there's you know a connection that closes as you know as we're born and we uh, we develop and that was usually fixed surgically and now we're able to fix that with a, a, a a catheter-based device through the groin. Once that we know on one echo or multiple echoes following that that has been closed, that doesn't need to continually be followed up. Uh, but what I would say is probably if you're having dental procedures or antibiotic prophylaxis for that is kind of the only thing left beyond that. But that should have been a one and done. Um, this person also asked, can you explain a collateral bypass? Uh, or how do collaterals form? Sure, so what they're probably talking about is when you have a vessel, a coronary artery that's been blocked for a long time or slowly gets blocked, the heart forms its own bypasses or own collaterals. Um, so there's multiple ways connecting the right and left side, so that's probably what they mean. Uh, so the heart finds a way to get blood supply where it needs it, it just takes time and you have to give it that time. That's great when the heart can yeah. find the way to, to manage. Nature, right? nature yeah, usually smarter than all of us. Yeah, <laughs> nature finds a way. Yeah, the body's amazing. Uh, uh, Dr. Chowdhury, your practice is more heart failure. Mm -hmm. And we were talking a little before the show mm -hmm. how you're seeing this is becoming a bigger issue. Why is that? Uh, so people are living longer, the medical system has evolved, uh, cardiology as a, as a field has evolved where people are getting treated for heart attacks on the spot and, and uh, you know, we are, we are treating the problem. Uh, as a long-term consequences uh, of diet, sedentary lifestyles, you know, uh, the heart kind of starts failing at, with age or with time or if they have had suffered a heart attack, uh, I think those are the main things that, uh, that's the reason the heart's failing and that's what we're seeing a lot of it right now. Yeah, and so what do you find most rewarding in your practice with working uh, with? I, I think uh, the patients are on the sicker side, and you know, once the heart starts failing, it's basically a journey together where we kind of try to work on the quality of life. You know, uh, try to keep the volume status uh, as 
as dry as possible so the patient can enjoy their you know daily walks or you know attend the uh, son's graduation and so so I think that journey with the patient is the most rewarding part of my job yeah what do you find most rewarding for your job um, it's how thankful people are. It's amazing um, how much trust I think they have in, you know, in their doctors, but you know, the trust that they place in me. To me, it's really an opening into how kind people can be even in the most tough situations for their family members. Um, I think you get to see them at their rawest. Um, and it's a, it's a special thing to be able to create that kind of a bond with somebody. What made you decide to go into medicine? <laughs> so I, I, my grandfather had an illness uh, that was treated with surgically very quickly. Um, and I was so much happier that he was able to come back home. And I wanted to be able to help other people find that happiness. Um, it, health crises really take a toll on everybody. Uh, and they can be huge stressors uh, that really diminish the quality of life that we can help with. So I think having even a small part in reducing that is, is really a, a good purpose in life. Yeah. Dr. Chowdhury, how did you uh, decide to go into medicine? Uh, uh, I think I would call it. It was, uh, I did, I did uh, I did have some uh, like my father had a heart attack when I was a kid, so that was just kind of stayed with me. So, 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 uh, so there was some heart disease in the family, and then as I kind of progressed, I looked at medical field that I felt I could do a difference, you know. And there was uh, seemed very challenging at that point, and then once I got in, and I just kind of got involved. Uh, and then uh, in terms of cardiology, I really liked the acuteness of cardiology, where I got real enjoyed being involved in codes or heart attacks or STEMI situation. And that kind of just kind of got me involved. And, and about 20 years later, here <laughs> we are. You know, yeah. time just flies by. It just keeps on dry. Yeah, I guess getting involved, yep. How, how do you help a patient where their heart function has been slowly on the decline? Yeah. How, how do you help them? With the with transitioning yeah. or goals of care. Goals of care. So so there's two. Uh, if the patients on the younger side, if they're like less than 70 years old, uh, and uh, and if the heart's reached end stage where they're not pumping, I usually evaluate that if they will be a good candidate to get a get a heart transplant or a machine that can support a heart. The patients that are not very good candidate that will not do well with the surgery, that's when I get palliative care on board because we, we can keep on pushing the patient, but at the end of the day, the quality of life is what matters. And then we kind of focus on that. You know, if they're, if they're not able to breathe, then oxygen, if they're too much on pain, then pain medication to kind of help their you know, quality of life. So that's where the kind of focus shifts. So it's very patient dependent. So depending on what the patient's needs are, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and that's where the palliative care has been uh, a big part of my program and we work very closely uh, so if I do have a heart failure patient that I feel is he heading towards that I get the palliative care involved early on so that uh, so that patient can build a relationship it's more because uh, we don't want to have the discussion towards the end of the life you know so they follow the patient's trajectory they keep on checking and then basically it's a group discussion and then we'll take it we take it from there. Dr. Helder in, in one minute you know you're literally have their heart right there. And so you're facing life and death decisions too. How do you approach that with uh, your patients? I think at some point, you know, 
unfortunately for my patients, they can't make that decision right after surgery. So I try to understand what's most important to them before I operate on them, that discussion that we have beforehand, and that I know what they want, that their family members know what they want, mm -hmm. and that we really strive for what their quality of life you know, means to them, and that we're able yeah. to return them to that or make it better. Excellent. Yeah, have those conversations with your family and right. what your wishes would be and, Absolutely. and uh, enjoy life. Right. The winner of our drawing tonight is Christy from Sioux Falls. Thank you, Christy, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this. Tonight on call, physician's assistants, nurse practitioners, and caring close to home. A woman had been feeling short of breath for several weeks. Physical activities which had previously been easy for her were becoming a chore. In fact, simply laying down resulted in difficulty breathing. She had gained some weight and her legs were swollen. This woman was a patient of mine and she was in heart failure. This doesn't necessarily mean her heart was going to stop completely, but it was having trouble keeping up. For whatever reason, her heart struggled to pump, and fluid was building up in her body, adding more strain. It was a vicious circle, and it was getting worse. After listening to her story, I completed a physical examination and ordered a few tests. Then I talked to my patient about heart failure. We agreed she would take medication to help her heart pump better and fluid pills to help decrease the swelling. Heart failure is often triggered by some type of damage affecting the heart's ability to pump. Heart damage might result from a sudden heart attack blocking blood flow in an artery of the heart. Sometimes damage occurs slowly, blocking blood flow due to the gradual buildup of cholesterol known as coronary artery disease. Other causes of heart failure may include faulty heart valves, an irregular heart rhythm, high blood pressure, smoking, diabetes, or obesity. Myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart, can also lead to heart failure. Often temporary, myocarditis can be the result of a virus or other infections, drugs, chemicals, and other diseases. Sometimes the reason for heart failure may be a lung problem. The heart pumps blood through the lungs and back to the heart, then out through the body. So if the blood is not flowing through the lungs efficiently, the heart can have trouble. Thus, a blood clot in the lungs, smoking, vaping, cancer, infection, or other lung problems can also lead to heart failure. I recently saw my patient again, and she feels great. She rarely experiences shortness of breath anymore. She faithfully takes the medications and keeps an eye on her weight and her diet. But other than that, she does not think much about it. If you are experiencing increased shortness of breath with activity, swelling of the legs, an unusual increase in weight, increased fatigue, chest pain, or if you feel like your heart is beating too quickly or not in a regular manner, 
Please see your doctor. Your heart works hard so you can keep up your activities. Please make sure you return the favor. Thank you to our guests, Megana and Mohammed, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about the many issues of the heart. We've got some great news to share with you. Dr. Ken Bartholomew, a member of the Healing Words Foundation board and longtime friend of the Prairie Duck, has completed his kayak challenge. In September 2020, Dr. B announced he would kayak a total of 411 miles on the Missouri River from the North Dakota border to the Nebraska border. He challenged all of us to support his effort with donations, and despite three cancer surgeries this past year, he reached his goal at last week. Dr. B, you are the perfect example that staying active has healing power. Your dedication to our mission resulted in more than $5,000 in support of our Prairie Doc programs. Thank you, Dr. Bartholomew, and thanks to all who made a donation. If you travel south for the winter, remember to watch the show live on Facebook. When you are, we invite you to like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. We will not have a live show next week due to the South Dakota High School Football Championships, but we will be back November 18th as we continue our 20th season of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. From all of us here at On Call with Prairie Doc, until next time, Stay healthy out there, people. Now we pretend like we're talking and having fun. <laughs> Brings a lot to the table. Eat healthy, fresh food, and we do better. Eat a diet of overprocessed food? Not so well. Eat to your health. Next time, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. So, Mom, isn't this the year, the 20th anniversary season of the Prairie Doc? That's right. That's amazing. I, I remember when you and Dad started this idea of producing science-based medical information free for the public. That's right, and thanks to years of donations from businesses, organizations, and individuals, Prairie Doc programs are available on South Dakota Public TV, mm -hmm. Facebook, YouTube, podcasts, and our essays are printed in over 150 newspapers across many states it's and amazing. region. 150 newspapers. 150. You know, I'm grateful to serve with you on the Healing Words Foundation board and try to work to build new generations of, of listeners and followers. Many volunteers give their heart and soul to this Prairie Doc mission so that we can continue Dad's legacy of truthful, tested, timely medical information for 20, 20 seasons. <laughs> now, to help continue this important work, please follow the Prairie Doc and share our programs on all of your social media pages. To make a financial gift, please give directly to prairiedoc.org or mail to P.O. Box 752 Brookings, South Dakota. Thank you.
Major funding for On Call with Prairie Doc has been provided by... Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Dock on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Dock as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Tell Communications.